0: Once again to the Welcome once again to the Global Gale podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden, and sending this out to the 70-odd million, give or take, lads, might be more, might be less, the 70-odd million Irish around the world. I hope you're doing well. I hope if you're in the southern hemisphere, you're tying everything down and getting ready for the winter. In the northern hemisphere, I'm sure you're looking forward to a long summer, especially if you're in Europe or North America where it can get dark and grey and awful at this time of the year. Uh, I am obviously looking forward to the latter. Thanks to everybody who got in touch after last week's episode. It was a fairly long one. I think it was over an hour and 20 minutes. And, uh,. We had some greetings through the Limor uh, social audio app about St Patrick's Day so that's the lid on St Patrick's Day for this year but then two great interviews uh, and it's not because I was involved in them at all it's because we had uh, Claire Cunningham from County Louth telling us about her uh, achieving her dream, if you like, of appearing at the Grand Old Opry in Nashville. Really brilliant uh, Irish musician, singer, songwriter uh, over there living our best life and really sort of carving a path for herself. And then we spoke to Ronan Sheehan in Cambodia about the Koji Khmer GA Club and how they're trying to raise funds to get to the World Games in Derry, which are coming up this summer. And it was gas because we dropped the podcast, you know, obviously on a Saturday morning, it's ten o'clock Central European Time when the podcast comes out, and then the BBC had done a similar thing, speaking to some of Renan's players and that kind of thing. So Jesus, by the end of the week, lads, every inbox I had on LinkedIn and on Facebook and on Instagram, people go, "Oh, do you see this? Do you see this? Do you see this?" And I was going, "Yeah, I know." So wasn't the only on the Global Gale podcast last week? So it's great to see that uh, we're doing the right thing. We're telling the stories that the people around the world want to hear. Irish and not so Irish. Uh, But great if you can share this podcast, right? Because it is every episode we make and every person we have on we get a few new listeners every time you know but the only way to sort of maximise that is that if we do a couple of weeks where everybody just goes do you know what I'm going to do Phil a favour here I'm going to share this one I enjoyed this one uh, so I'm going to share this I'll stick it up on my Facebook or I'll put it in the family WhatsApp group or the local WhatsApp group in Brisbane or whatever and uh, I'll let everybody know so if you could do that that would be a huge help to me altogether another way you can help me is go to patreon.com forward slash stockholm five a month lads uh, you can do for less if you want. to, You can do it for more if you want. Don't let me discourage you. Uh, so you can go in there and throw in a five a month. It just it helps uh, to pay for the time and the studio and everything else that's needed to bring you these podcasts every week. On the same Patreon feed you will get the Irish and Sweden podcast. You will get the Arrowman and Stockholm podcast and there's a couple of fascinating interviews coming up there as well. And you'll also get the Premier Swedes podcast which is about Swedish footballers who have played in England's Premier League. And every time I get a half an hour to sit down with one of them or an hour if they'll sit down with me for longer I dropped those podcasts out there and there's some gas stories out there even though you know, it might not be lads who played for, for the biggest clubs and that kind of thing but there's some great stories out there and so far I think we've spoken to Anders Limpar who used to play for Arsenal and uh, we've spoken to Roland Nielsen who played for Coventry and Sheffield Wednesday and who was I speaking of? Oh Pontus Cormac actually who played for Leicester he's the one I think who played the least amount of games in the Premier League but I found the interview with him fascinating as well because he was part of the USA 94 team and that kind of thing uh, coming up is Nicholas Alexanderson, and then hopefully Sebastian Sebastian Lawson, who used to play for Arsenal and something like that. So that's all on the one feed. So if you can throw in a five a month, that would be great. If you have a big company, if you've inherited several billion, Mr. Mr. Musk, if you're listening, and you want to throw in a million, show work away, drop me an email, hit me up on social media. Right, this week... Um, Last week we were in Cambodia, and then we were in Nashville, or the other way around. And this week we are heading to Finland, because I was having a fascinating chat the other day with an Irish academic who has an incredibly broad range in an incredibly narrow subject, I suppose you could say. Her name is Garo Jean McAvoy, and she is from County Leash. And she works with minority languages, including sign language, right? And I was kind of thinking to myself, you know, when I was in touch with her, I said, geez, yeah, no, I'll have to talk to her. I said, what do you talk to her about? Because it sounds very niche. And then you start to talk to her and your head just explodes. Because even though it's so niche, it's something that touches absolutely all of us, not least... Those of us as Irish people because of what happened to our own language under 800 years of colonialism and our own attitude, attitude to it and how it was taught in schools and everything else like that. So I got in touch with Gaudian and very kindly she jumped on the podcast almost straight away. She goes, yeah, I'll do that. Uh, and she's over beyond in neighbouring Finland, not too far from where I am in Stockholm and Sweden. So I grabbed her then and we sat down and we had a very wide-ranging chat about all these things and I'm delighted to bring it to you now. So this is it. Gero Jean McAvoy on minority languages and a whole lot of other things besides. (laughs) Garojian McAvoy with the most impressive podcast microphone, apart from one that I have in my other studio. Uh, welcome to the Global Gale. I got that lovely news when you said, yeah, I'd love to go on the podcast. And then you it came with the lovely news that you are eight months pregnant in Finland. And I can't think of anything better to be doing this winter. How's that going for you?
1: Uh, it's gone grand. I'm really lucky. I keep telling people who've had, you know, other friends and stuff who had babies and they're like, how are you doing? And I'm like, I'm fine. And they're like, that's great for you, but I hate you. So <laughs> I'm really I'm grand. I'm a little tired lately, but um. Uh, I've, I'm managing well. I'm very lucky. And uh, Finland's a nice place to be pregnant in, let me tell you. It's really nice. It, it
0: ain't bad at all. I was going yeah. to ask you, how much of the tiredness is baby-related and how much of it is just a poxy winter here in Scandinavia?
1: Um, we had that, I don't know if you had that in Sweden. We had the Takatalvi, the like fake spring, where we yeah. had two days of like beautiful weather and then we had like half a metre of snow the next day. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just so ready to be done with it because like I'm not like, I wouldn't be that steady on my feet lately and i'm just so done with winter
0: you mm. know when
1: it comes in november i'm always happy i'm always i always love it and then by the time april rolls around i'm like all right it's enough now we've we have enough you yeah know? we're done here yeah that's it <laughs> yeah yeah
0: we, we had the same thing the poor snowdrops were buried under about six feet of snow like you know yeah. <laughs> at, at this kind of class. are you over there in finland a long time
1: yeah um kind of on and off like for i met my husband a decade ago <laughs> yeah, that, that um, <laughs> I so I've been on and off since I met last day, since I met my husband. Um, and then I did a masters here, so I lived in Turku or Obo, I suppose right. you call it in Swedish. Um, and then I lived there for a while, and then just before the pandemic, I kind of like switched over here, and I work between Ireland, the UK, and Finland now. Obviously, I'm fairly stationary at the moment. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm over and back. Uh, for the best part of of about I'd say about eight years or so. Um, yeah. that I started kind of coming here and sort of like staying here. Mm. As I said, I, I did a master's here uh, back in 2014. Oh, my gosh. Um, and I lived here for about two years doing that. And then I moved back to Dublin. And then um, uh, in my current job, I'm based kind of in three different locations. But mm. at the moment, Finland-based, which is very nice.
0: How, how do you find Finland? Because it's, it's you know, the word I would use is unique. There There's nowhere <laughs> in the world like Finland. There's no people like the Finnish people. How did you find getting on with your husband the personal relationship and settling in there
1: that's that co- unique that covers all sense, doesn't it I'd, I'd agree they're definitely they're um they're unique people i think my husband is is as someone has described him before is aggressively friendly which for finland sure Jesus, yeah. <laughs> um that just means he
0: talks to people basically yeah, finland, he's right? just he's
1: chatty um but uh you know for it, it, it was a cultural shift you know I had lived in America before I moved here and when I first got here I was like I couldn't I just I knew what to expect because I had Finnish friends in America I had met my husband when I lived in America mm. and um I kind of knew that they were like quieter but it's a lot different moving here they are a quiet people and it is kind of hard to crack into into getting to know Finns and and, and working in the culture um and that was quite hard at the start um i guess I, I definitely experienced some culture shock um but uh particularly having come from america where it's the exact opposite of that right. you know and where i lived in america was a fairly irish Central area. I lived in Missoula, Montana. So it was like mm. everyone was Irish. Yep. There's <laughs> um, whole towns so, there. Is it Butte, yeah, Montana that huge has the most Montana. Irish people
0: outside of Ireland? Basically, that's yeah? it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> more okay. than South Boston because South Boston is fairly highly densely populated, whereas Butte, Montana, not so much. Jesus. But uh they, they, you know, that felt like being at home. You know, that felt like like just you know being in wherever. Mm. Um, so I didn't experience kind of culture shock there, but moving here, definitely, I did. But it's I love it now I mean it's it's it feels as much home as as Ireland does um and I kind of I think I've like I don't know become Nordicified so when I go home and I have to wait for a bus and then the Dublin bus says that it's not on time or it just disappears off the board I get like irritated and I'm like oh that's the Nordic coming out in me because the bus is the bus is on time here you know the bus is it's coming that's it <laughs> you can guarantee so i think um it's definitely something that you know it's it's an odd oh, I, I was just literally just watching uh, some of the election coverage in english and um they were talking about foreigners coming here And like the biggest thing that I get asked when I tell people that I live in Finland, including by Finns, is why? (laughs) Like, (laughs) why did you move here? And like fair, um, you know, it's not it wouldn't be the most well known of Nordic countries. That's that's for sure. It's uh, it's existing in in, uh, kind of like furiously in Sweden's shadow, I think all the time. Um, there's this like rivalry that exists in the minds of Finnish people that I don't think Swedes are aware of, or like not bothered by at all. I think, um, I think it's kind of like British people
0: and Irish people; like they don't right. actually realize how much we fucking don't like them at times, yeah, like, you know?
1: Exactly, exactly. And it's
0: only there's a, there's a lad I know here in Sweden, and he lives in a place called Boln. Actually, lives in Stockholm now, but he was born to Finnish parents in Sweden. And the moment those two teams face off in any sport, he is as Finnish fin- as the day is long. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know. And he, and he, look, like, he. It comes at me just because i live here for some reason i have come to represent swedish people For like, oh, man, i don't care about ice <laughs> hockey <you know?
1: laughs> yeah no nothing matters as much to a finn maybe beating russia but beating sweden Ooh, that's 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 their world cup every single time doesn't matter if it's like a, a like a relegation playoff or whatever no on. no they beating sweden is is peak peak sport in uh in a, a Finn's mind, which is I I'm not so sure it goes the other way. I don't think the Swedes care. <laughs> I think
0: they care. It is that sort of, you know, well, we've got, you know, twice the amount of people and we used yeah. to rule you, and one yeah. our language is still one of your official languages and that kind of thing. You know, so yeah. they do look down their nose at people. You know, I have described the Swedes as being the Brits of Scandinavia before.
1: I would, I would concur with that. <laughs> I,
0: yeah, I'm just I'm just glad that nobody in Sweden listens to this podcast outside <laughs> the Irish community because otherwise I would be thrown out of my head, you know. Um, have you started to learn Finnish? Because it's a notoriously difficult. Oh, come
1: here. <laughs> I, so my husband's a Swedish-speaking Finn, um, and I live in a Swedish-speaking, a fairly Swedish-speaking town. It's about 50-50. And then I did my masters in Obo Academy, which is the Swedish-speaking university, mm. which um, is to say that I've copped out and learned Swedish um, because I speak fairly decent Swedish, but I can't really understand Swedish, Swedish because it's so different. <laughs> okay. um, um, but I have started to learn Finnish but it's hard it's really hard and like what makes it even harder is that like every finn will apologize for their bad english and then speak english with like perfect grammar so like the motivation That's to aspects. actually learn i know they're so good at it <laughs> um it just and i mean i'm uh, listen i it's not that i'm like allergic to learning languages i i have a background in languages my job is based around languages um which makes me acutely aware of how bonkers the language is like it it like they're like there's no there's no irregular verbs like yeah that's true but everything is irregular so like yeah, yeah. You're that's really... because
0: they're all irregular verbs. yeah
1: exactly <laughs> so so i i mean i can appreciate it for what it is which is a bonkers language i don't think i'll ever truly crack it uh, to a level where you know i'm going to be delivering speeches in finnish but um thankfully my, my, my thing is minority languages so I can sort of like settle into that and be like, no, no, I'm just like living up to my brand and speaking
0: Swedish. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So like, Only 10%, I think, in, in Finland are still speaking Swedish, you know? Less, it was funny, less. Actually... Is it <laughs> less? Yeah, I was yeah. only, I was talking to the footballer, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, the other day at a press conference and I asked him questions in English and he was sort of saying, you know, like, oh, I actually find it easier to express myself in English now. And years ago, he would have said to me, my English isn't great. And I've, like I said to him at the press conference, I said, finally, your English is now better than mine. <laughs> like you know, because I can't remember but there is actually a girl who lives here in Sweden called Michelle Cotter who learned fin- Finnish without pretty much ever setting foot in, in Finland which is the oh most God. remarkable thing I've ever seen Great. and it doesn't give me any hope that it's any easier I just think that she's just you know again unique is the word I would use yeah you
1: know? no it's it's quite um there it, it's there's just the more you learn of it the more you're like why, why is it this way And they're like, oh, for pronunciation purposes. And I'm like, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah, no, that's
0: not what it is at all. There's a famous video as well of a a basketball player called Lowry Markkanen. And he's saying uh, the word or the, the Finnish word for aircraft maintenance mechanic.
1: Yeah, and yeah. it's basically
0: like tipping a, a box of Scrabble out on the table. It's just ridiculous.
1: yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about your you mentioned minority languages there and your work and your research and that kind of thing. And a lot of it is to do with uh, to do with not so much minority languages as minority issues, right? And yeah. sign language in particular, where does that interest in sign language? And not just sign language in itself, but the legal recognition sign language where does that come from and why is it important garradine
1: oh that's a really good question so um my own background kind of is where this this my interest in it comes from so i'm not i'm from Leash. i grew up speaking english but i sort of like found myself in an irish speaking community kind of in my teens um i sort of like really started liking irish and like enjoying the community and getting involved in the community and studying i went to ucc to study law and irish down there um and that was the degree that was sort of based around creating legal translators for the european union but there was a large component of that that was connected to we'll say um like understanding minority language rights as irish speakers right and the rights that exist for for irish speakers and uh part of that as i already mentioned i I lived in montana for a while um and i was teaching irish out there and while I was there there's also there's indigenous communities that live in in Montana there's Native American communities in particular the Blackfoot tribe and I remember sort of seeing some of the issues that that the Blackfoot tribe were faced with and sort of seeing this parallel with Irish speaking communities and being like oh like lack of funding for schools teaching your language like that's the same thing that is being experienced in the Gaelic, and so being really interested in that that uh like comparison and then I met my husband who's as I said from a Swedish speaking background and he's decidedly not interested in these topics but I was very interested in like like from like an almost anthropological perspective like interested in like you know the the experiences of Swedish speaking Finns um, and seeing those comparisons so I pursued a, as I said a master's degree here Oboe Academy studying that and then I just wasn't ready to let that go. I wasn't finished. I had more to say. So I, I moved back to Ireland and it was during when I started applying to do a PhD, I met uh, my two supervisors who supervised my PhD and one of them suggested to me, have you ever thought about the deaf community? And like up to this point, I had never thought about the deaf community except so for So it's, it's my... not
0: something in your family? It's not your parents Nothing. or anything? No, that no, no,
1: no, no. And it was my only experience of it was that when so in Ireland, when the nuacht is on the news, the Irish language news is on at like it's like 535 or something. It starts on RTE, And then right after it is the European weather forecast. And right after that is the ISL news, the Irish Sign language news. And so I would I would be watching the nuacht, and then like the 6-1 would come on. And in between that, I would see the ISL. And that was my only experience with ISL. Yeah. And then when I started looking into this community, I was like, oh, my God this is where the comparison is between the Irish speaking community and the deaf community. And I was kind of like horrified that there wasn't more awareness in the Irish speaking community about the allyship we could be doing with the deaf community, because like our issues are their issues. Like for example, TG Carher got set up in Ireland because a group of people were protesting the TV license because there was no access to Irish language. Uh, television they wanted uh you know television and production in their language and so eventually TG Carrier got set up on the on the basis of that protest and you see now a complete lack of of ISL content you know there might be like an ISL translated version of like I don't know fair city on like three o'clock on a Saturday you know (laughs) but you know the 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 lack of of and it's not just in that space that's just one example that people might be more familiar with but just the lack of services in a language um, and in a language that's recognized now in Ireland um, uh, legislatively, it's, it's really, really interesting to see that comparison. And so I sort of, again, once I finished my PhD, wasn't necessarily ready to let that go. And so that's what I'm doing now. I'm doing research around um, the situation of Finland, the situation in the United Kingdom, in, in the four nations and in, in the Republic of Ireland and like Finland. So I always think it's really funny that like when I say that I live in Finland, either people know nothing about it or one of two group of people know something and they are either heavy metal fans or deaf people (laughs) because Finland is like this utopia for deaf people, which like hearing people know nothing about. And a bunch of them have been here on like vacation, and like you know, I, again, it sort of has a culture. that fin, Finns are really quiet, mm. and like the the information is provided written, provided written in multiple languages: Finnish, Swedish, English, sometimes Russian as well, um, Sami in different parts of Finland as well. Um, and so there there is just kind of a general the culture that benefits deaf society and deaf culture also benefits of Finn. So um, it is this sort of like weird um, utopia for deaf people that, as I said, hearing people kind of know nothing about. Um, and where I'm living now is actually historically a fairly um, important part of deaf culture in Finland. It's the site of the the, the city or Borgo, as you call it in Swedish, is where the first deaf school was set up in Finland. It's no longer here, but um, the first deaf school was set up here in 1846, I think. Um, which was pretty unusual at the time because they really weren't teaching sign language to deaf kids around the world. Um, so it's uh, historically pretty significant.
0: Yeah. Um, sign language isn't the same the world over, right? So if you can sign and finish, that doesn't necessarily mean that a Grail gore or, or somebody in Birmingham, uh, which is one of the universities you're attached to, So how does it work and why is Finland so far ahead of the rest of the world? Is it to do with the fact that, you know, their their own language is almost a minority language or was a minority (laughs) language in their own country?
1: Ah, uh, that's a really good question. So yeah, so to, to answer that in a few parts. So yes, sign languages are are separate from spoken languages. They're not connected in any way. So the language that we have in Ireland, ISL, Irish Sign Language, it's not connected to Irish, the spoken language. Um, you do finger spell something. So you have you create letters with your hand, and those spellings are based on English. But other than that, it's its own language. It's um, you know, so the language that we use in, in Ireland, ISL is not the same as the language they use in the UK, which is BSL. It's actually, ISL would be much more similar to American sign language, ASL, which people might be much more familiar with. Um, uh, And then there's a different sign language in Australia. So they're not mutually intelligible. And the same is true in Finland. Um, There's actually two sign languages here. There's Finnish sign language and Finland Swedish sign language that developed in actually the school that I mentioned. It would have Mm -hmm. developed here because... Swedish speaking Finns sent their kids to this school and so a language developed basically out of that school and now the two languages are so separate that they're not mutually intelligible I think maybe 30 or 40 percent of the language is the same but then otherwise it's a bit like Danish and Swedish or something Mm. like they're they're sort of similar but not Mm. um so I think that's a really good question about the reason why um Finland had because Finland is is in 1995, in Finland, um, sign language was recognized under the constitution, which was the second ever country to do that. Which, in you know, in the history of the world, not that recent, but in like deaf studies, quite recent, mm. or, or quite long ago. Sorry. So I think it's a combination of things. It's just like quite vocal, educated deaf people coming from Finland um, and having access to education. You know, Finland's. Um, giving great access to education for all of its people for a long time. And that benefited deaf people, too. Um, And so you had these kind of like activists from deaf activists from Finland who were pretty sort of savvy and knew how to access um, and knew how to connect with the government. But as well as there being a history of. Minority language understanding in Finland. So, um, you know, there is the Swedish-picking community here. Oland is an autonomous region of Finland that where Swedish is the only spoken language um, or the only language of Oland. And so there was, and that that dates back to um, the League of Nations, like 1921, Mm -hmm. I think, or 22. Um, So there was that understanding of language being important to communities. You know, there was lots of discussions about Sami also at the time. I do think there was a misunderstanding. I think the government fundamentally didn't really understand. So they just mentioned sign language in the constitution. They don't talk about the two separate sign languages. When the law was created in 2015, they did recognize both, but that was like 20 years later. Um, So I do think they're, I mean, it's good, but it's not perfect. Like I always need to, to, to like say that to particularly Irish people who are like, oh, it's great in Finland. I'm like, yeah, it is. It's better than home, but like, it's still, there's still problems. Um, so but I think, yeah, it's a it's a culmination of, of different sort of aspects of Finnish culture, as well as there being um, kind of uh, a, a vocal, if you pardon the pun, a vocal, um, you know, deaf community here who were really active kind of quite early on in in the history of, of deaf activism.
0: Um, You mentioned that legal recognition. Finland was the second country. You'll have to tell me who the first country was. But in terms of that, because that's a very specific area that you look at, the legal recognition, what does that mean? Does that mean that if I'm a deaf person, I'm entitled to state services? I'm entitled to a certain number of hours of broadcasting on TV with a sign language interpreter there. What does it mean for me in my everyday life as a hearing impaired person?
1: Yeah, um, I'm just going to... Uh, d- we don't use the term hearing impaired. Um, okay, deaf- yeah, Yeah, no, 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 it's fine. Um, so deaf person or hard of hearing people. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's a really good question. <laughs> like the, the first country is Uganda. Um, uh, and I don't know anything about the history of why Uganda was the first country to have uh, sign language recognizing. That would be a whole
0: other podcast, I could tell you. We yeah, can- I don't
1: know. <laughs> um, uh, I can't speak too much more to that, but... Um, uh, so, in terms of of what legal recognition means, I mean that's the crux of my research. Like, mm. <laughs> I mean uh, to answer is briefly everything and nothing. Um, so, in some instances, so we have this like co- co- conversations around like what is an official language of a country, and like to me that means nothing right because irish is the first official language of ireland but try get services in irish in ireland you know and you'll be you'll know all about it um you'll be waiting for it or you'll be treated like a pariah um and that was the crux the basis for my phd but um uh, so legal recognition can mean a whole host of different things and i think what what i'm trying to do in my research is is trying to explore what legal recognition looks like in these different jurisdictions. So what it looks like in Scotland, because that looks different to what it looks like in England and that looks different to what it could look like in Northern Ireland because there's nothing in Northern Ireland just yet. And that looks different to what it, it looks like in Ireland. And that looks different to what it looks like in Finland. And what I'm trying to get at is to ask deaf people and the deaf community. Okay, you have legal recognition. What's working for you? What do you need and what's not working for you? And some of the major issues that we've found so far is like just a lack of education across the board, across these three countries, like education in sign language is so important. So like we often hear people talk about like, oh, we should be teaching sign language in schools. And like, yeah, we absolutely should be. We should be teaching them in deaf schools first, because for a lot of it, we're not teaching deaf kids sign language. We're teaching them to hearing kids, which is great. But deaf kids need access to their language too. Um, and there is this sort of push to sort of medicalize everything and not to criticize anyone with a cochlear implant, which is the the kind of like it's the not the hearing aid. It's the one that sort of is a, attached to the back of the skull. There's a um, a, a brain surgery that's required. Um, and so there's a, a part implanted in the skull and then there's a part on the outside. And it allows a, a deaf person who can have a cochlear implant process sound it doesn't make them hearing it doesn't stop them being deaf and so they um yeah there's there's a lot of uh there's a lack of education all around so like legal recognition doesn't guarantee that that education for deaf people legal recognition doesn't necessarily guarantee that you'll even be allowed an interpreter if you need to go to court or you need to go to the doctor and that you'll be given an interpreter Um, in the uk for example in England. The legal recognition, which has been recently achieved for for BSL, it does not guarantee any of that. Basically, what it guarantees is that the government probably should have an interpreter next to them when they give a public broadcast of national importance. Mm -hmm. And that's it. So legal recognition can, can be a lot of different things. But I'm interested in pursuing, like, what does it need to be? And if we really care about the deaf community, if we really want to provide services for the deaf community we need to be asking the deaf community what they need and want asking them what's working and asking them what's what's not working and very often very often that's not done (laughs) so Mm. particularly by politicians who like to stand in front of cameras get the photographs taken about how great they are for the deaf community and then forget about them until the general election rolls around. Yeah, presenting something that
0: nobody wants, you know, as a solution. Yes, look, we've done this great thing. Well, nobody fucking asked you, you know.
1: Exactly.
0: (laughs) I remember during the the pandemic here when the famous Anders Tegnell, the the state epidemiologist who people had tattoos of and T-shirts of and that kind of thing. And his press conferences here were like daily. And every day they had two sign language interpreters who would... Uh, who would do, do their thing and they would be sort of in the corner of the screen there which I remember thinking at the time going Jesus isn't that great and then after about two days I was going Jesus isn't that exactly what they're supposed to be doing like is if in the middle of a, a global <laughs> pandemic this Christ. is the, and the other thing is Caroline You know when you see uh, shows like the Eurovision Song Contest and you see somebody signing each song and that kind of thing, hugely entertaining, gifted communicators there and we look at it and sometimes they turn into memes or they turn into viral Mm. moments and yet for somebody else, that's the only way that they can enjoy the same things that you and I do. Right? Is there, do we need to make this so normal that we don't even see it anymore? Is that what we need to do for the deaf community?
1: Sure, I really do, I think so and I think it's I mean, speaking of the Eurovision, we had a really great oh my god the interpreter that um his first name was Manuel he's really great um the guy who d- interpreted for Ulla for the the. Finland's version of Melody Festivalen. so yeah. The, so this the, is how Finland chooses the song, one. yeah, and it goes
0: on for most of the bloody winter, and it's a hugely complicated process. Yeah. But people up here love the Eurovision version. Yeah,
1: reason. we watch the we watch the 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 Swedish version of it because it's so good. But they do the UM, UMK, the the like selection Eurostar as it used to be in Ireland. They do it on one night, but there was a guy who tra- who translated all of the songs into Finland, Finnish sign language and he's deaf and it was so good and I found myself much more capable of understanding the lyrics watching him than I did listening to the finish um but uh yeah so I think normalization is the key here because I remember years ago when ISL became an official or became recognized legally in Ireland um there was a lot of talk about the the national anthem being translated into ISL and how profound this was going to be for the deaf community and so they had organized at um I might have been the footballer in Ireland that year. I don't remember um, to have an ISL interpreter on this pitch. So they were going to play the national anthem and then they were going to have an interpreter and the interpreter was going to be deaf. It was going to be great. And indeed they did. And then RTE showed three seconds of it on TV, which is like if you're deaf and you're waiting to see the interpreter, unless you're standing in front of him, what's the point of him being there? Like nobody saw it. And I just remember thinking nobody in that room who made any decision knew anything about deaf people because they didn't put it in a tiny box at the bottom. You know what I mean? Mm. And I remember that year there was complaints and then there was this Hurley in All-Ireland all and they again didn't put the, the the interpreter on on screen. And then it was only on TG Cahir when the women's All-Ireland was played that they put it on. And then I remember thinking at the time that that is the station that is familiar with working with minority languages versus a station that isn't. And that was just the disparity between the two. That was just a clear understanding of how to provide access when I I think particularly when you come from a uh, a, a monolingual English speaking culture like Ireland, like the UK, like America, like Australia, like New Zealand. English is just so dominant that like no one thinks about access for other languages, including signed languages. Um, And it's interesting you mentioned COVID because I do think like one of the like bizarre side effects of COVID is that people became aware of sign language usage. You know, I I remember hearing that journalists who would be at the health conferences in Dublin would be like, hang on, we got to wait. The interpreter's not here yet, you know, and that had never, that had never happened before. Um, And so Cause there was a hurricane in Ireland. God, do you remember that hurricane that we had? Hurricane. Oh,
0: there was loads of it. was there was, a, there was some, one called Annie, something Annie or something. Yeah, like
1: that. I remember that being a big thing, and they had no interpreter when it was like status red or whatever, hmm. and so I remember because I'm part of the Facebook groups for the ISL community. And I remember people having to go on there and post their own videos about like when you couldn't go outside. And this is like something, again, it's just not thought of because like there's no deaf people in the decision in the room where the decisions are being made. There's no understanding of deaf people. And I mean, if you talk to a hearing person for like two minutes and you explain that situation to them, of course, they're sympathetic. And they're like, oh, my God, of course, we'll have an interpreter. But it's just no one thinks of it. It's not that they're like anti-deaf. It's just they don't think of it like. Mm. You know, if you went down O'Connell Street, I remember asking somebody about this on my PhD. And he said, if you went down O'Connell Street and you asked 100 people, do you think that the people who teach in deaf schools should be able to sign, should have sign language? Everyone's like, yeah, of course, mm. right? Everyone's sympathetic to that, but they don't realize that that was not a requirement. And that's it continues to not be a requirement that the, the teachers in the deaf schools actually have sign language. Mm. And like a lot of them do, but like to the same degree that I have it, which is like, you know, I can communicate fairly well, but like not to the level of like teaching a class of deaf kids, you know, so I think... Yeah. The major issue globally is visibility i do think it's getting better um i think you know culturally lately we've had a lot of deaf sort of uh great deaf people deaf excellence we've had you know uh, a deaf person winning uh second ever deaf person to win an oscar um recently um troy costa and then uh you know some other um deaf content i know there was a deaf woman on strictly come dancing in the uk she won strictly mm-hmm. and that sort of thing slowly but surely people are coming around to the awareness of that and these viral videos as well particularly when they're done by deaf people so like sometimes there's this thing where like a hearing person will like start doing like sign language videos of like songs and like that's not fairly well got in the deaf community because it should be a deaf person doing it um but i know at the at the Super Bowl, there was like a, a deaf performer who did. Um, she did Rihanna's halftime show and she was amazing. And that went viral. And like, that's great to sort of have that. That visibility, but it just needs to be on a much grander scale, I think. Mm.
0: So the risk is always with things like that, that uh, we just go back to doing things the way we'd always done them. Like, so now that the pandemic is over and yeah. it's not, you know, everybody has to be scared. Anybody got ah, look at, you know, if the interpreter doesn't turn up, it doesn't matter. You know, Exactly, yeah. and and that's the, the, the sort of the hard part. Where, where do you see this going? Because it's an area that you've been working in for quite some time. And, you know, you do have, you know, you wear many hats in this debate of, you know, of for, like being a, an advocate for deaf people and for sign language, but also for minority languages in general. Are you hopeful when you see what's happening in terms of recon- recognition, in terms of those legal rights actually, or legal recognition actually meaning something? Or is it not moving fast enough for you?
1: i mean it's never moving from the um <laughs> i think it's fair to say and i think i also recognize the limitations of the law here and that was a big part of my phd that like you can have a great law you can have a fantastic law but you can still have people who just refuse to accept um you know the the validity of another person um and the identity of another person and i think you start to see that much more and more when And identity starts to come to become mainstreamed, right? So, like, um, in my experience, that's that's already happened with Irish speakers, right? People have very visceral views about Irish speakers. And you know, no Irish speaker in Ireland can't also speak English. So why don't they just speak English? They're wasting my time. If I'm a guard at you know, three o'clock in the morning and there's an Irish speaker in front of me, and I'm like, I know you speak Irish or speak English, you're wasting my time. And like, yeah, that's the perspective of the Garda. But then for the perspective of the the Irish speaker, this is who they are fundamentally at their core. And they're told that they have not only a legal right, but a constitutional right to use their language. And they're also told that guards are trained to speak Irish. So I think when the, the identities become more mainstreamed, you do tend to have this like sort of like these attitudes develop in the majority that are like, Oh, but you're wasting resources. You're wasting time. And you see it everywhere. It's not just Ireland. You see it with Spanish speakers in the U S you see it with Swedish speaking here. You see it with Sami here. You see it with, um, you know, Welsh in, in, in Wales. You see it with any minority language user in, in France. It is the world over the same attitude happens. And I think the lack of visibility from the deaf community and then maybe the confusion between deaf, the deaf community being part of a linguistic minority and or the deaf community being part of a disability minority has sort of insulated them a little bit from some of those attitudes. But I think the more visible the deaf community become, the more likely that people are going to be like, don't you have a cochlear implant? Can't you hear or can't you speak? Or I don't believe that you're deaf, which, you, you know, you do. Lots of deaf people have experienced that, that. People will be like, "You don't look deaf," and like, "What the fuck does looking deaf? What does that mean?" <laughs> um, you know. And I think um, the more that the identity becomes visible, the more reaction to that visibility, and and not everybody has a good reaction to that, unfortunately.
0: Um, Is Gray a girl who freshen. Vito Eron yep. uh, podcast, Mother Folklore, which mm-hmm. was a very, a huge loss with that podcast. Uh, you, you don't make that anymore, do you? No,
1: we don't. No, unfortunately, we don't. That's why I had this lovely mic set up. Um, but no, unfortunately, we don't make it anymore. Every now and then, I think we we decided to leave the party when it was still going rather than p- people kicking us out, you know.
0: so You could become the Rolling Stones of the <laughs> Great Game. You know, you come back and do a sort of a little tour every now and again.
1: Every now and then. What,
0: what effect did that have? Because... You know, when I talk to people back in Ireland now and they want to send their children to a grail school and, like, the Irish language is perceived very differently now from when I was growing up and everybody was still giving out about Peg, even though it wasn't Peg's fault, you know? Um, Where is the Irish language now as a minority language? Does that attitude still exist that, look, at a all speak English, get on with it kind of thing? Or is there really still... I've always found it weird how it's not a source of, you know, like, uh, how it's not... We, we really should want to have this back kind of thing. I don't know what it is about it. You know?
1: Yeah, it's post-colonialism.
0: <laughs> That's yeah, but, what you're
1: experiencing. <laughs> yeah, and
0: it, it still confuses me because, like, yeah. my kids have never lived in Ireland. They're born and raised here in Sweden, right? But they're learning it. And I, I speak a little bit that I can still use to them and help them with it and that kind of thing. And it just strikes me that, you know, I would have thought that we would have had a burning desire to to like, to like bring our language back to life, but it doesn't seem to be the case.
1: I do think that's changing I definitely do think um there is a resurgence and I think it was weird kind of like being exposed to that when we were doing mother folklore like how many people were you know even migrants how many people were looking to to recapture that sense of identity you know yourself when you're abroad it's it's really important to feel like you're you know to reclaim that identity and for that identity to be visible and and people do that in all sorts of ways and part of that was was learning Irish you know as I said I I taught Irish in Missoula, Montana for six months. And um, well, let me tell you, those people, they all spoke Irish with this like West Cork dialect, which is like gas because the guy who who runs the program over there has that dialect. So um, I always thought it was really funny. They would like, speak English with this like, you know, Montana accent and then speak Irish with a West Cork accent. Oh, West Cork. Yeah, <laughs> which is great. But um, uh, it's, it, I do think that, You know, it's a complicated thing. I I definitely think that when I was doing my PhD research, I got really into like the identity of an Irish speaker and what that means to be an Irish speaker. And I, I came up with these three kind of tropes. There's like the good Gael who like doesn't impose his language on anybody. He like, you know, keeps his language to himself. He, you know, speaks his cuplifocal and then he switches back to English and then there's the bad Gael, that that person who like is like militant about it and they're like, no, I demand all the services in Irish. Mm-hmm. And then there's like the people I interviewed who I was calling the true Gael, who was just like people who were just like, no, no, this is who I am. This is this is it's it's some people who were like, I would rather go to jail for speaking my language and for being who I am, then switch to English. And like that sounds insane to some people, but also for these people, it was like so painful for them to have to do that. Mm -hmm. And it was like deeply, deeply hurtful for them to have to to feel persecuted for who they at their very core were. And like if you've any sense of self-preservation, like you're just going to speak English. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, whatever. And I think that really had an effect on me that I was like, oh, right. There's another type of person. This is the type of person who who I'm interested in, actually, these people who are like not f- forcing their language on anybody, like, quote unquote, forcing. But this is a person who, like, it matters so much to who they are fundamentally um, that they're willing to take all of this shit basically to um, in order to maintain their shred of who they are. And so I think. Yeah, it's a really complicated thing. And I, I like I, I joke about it, but it genuinely is an effect of post-colonialism. We have these weird attitudes. You see them. It's not unique to Ireland. It's a, you know, it's a byproduct of a colonized mind. We see this, this, this language as a hang up of a time of old and a sort of like ill cultured time of like, you know, before modern Ireland. But like that comes from colonialism. That's a, that's an ingrained attitude left over from colonialism, that this is an uneducated language that we need to get rid of and then you see kind of people going the opposite side of that and then just it it needing to be you know really central to who they are and then you just see people living their lives in it as well so it is a really complicated identity um but one that's not terribly unique to Ireland at all um and I think it's something that being exposed to mother folklore was so refreshing because like it was just gave me an opportunity to be like I don't know like we became these sort of like reluctant spokespeople for like it's okay if you don't know your grammar it's fine like Mm. (laughs) I don't care (laughs) most people don't care if you don't know how to do the tischlginerdach or whatever like genuinely people don't care people don't know how to do that in English so like why (laughs) (laughs)
0: it's
1: not that complicated (laughs) Um, but like you know things like that that people get so hung up about um, and I think you know, I'm currently in the process of learning Irish Sign Language. As I said, I'm doing my level six class at the moment. And I, it's really, t- the hardest part of language, right, is always speaking the language. And you're all, because I'm, I'm still reluctant sometimes. I'll understand, uh, you know, people in Swedish, but then sometimes I'll respond in English because I'm just like, it's hard to get over that barrier. But with ISL there's no speaking so you just have to do it like you can't write it down you just have to sign right <laughs> particularly when you're communicating with a deaf person who maybe doesn't lip read or or doesn't have a um a hearing aid or a cochlear implant you just, you gotta sign like that's the only way you're communicating so I got over that barrier far quicker with ISL than I did with any other spoken language but I think with Irish as well people are just like legitimately and like fairly like it, it's really terrifying to to sort of speak the language but I always you know, people are always like to me oh I've forgotten it all and I'm like you haven't trust me it's in there somewhere yeah. <laughs> you just need to unlock it <laughs> yeah, at
0: the St Patrick's Day Parade here in Stockholm there was a tent for Gory Gore and, and they meet up and they speak Irish in a pub and you hear people struggling for words and you know one of the best Irish speakers is a Canadian ac- academic who speaks better than most of us at this stage <laughs> and he feeds us words and we go we leave that place and then occasionally in the tent day you'll have people you'll have a Gael Gore who's been speaking it you know who, who was bilingual at home coming and speaking and and everybody loves that now we're all a tiny bit intimidated when they come (laughs) in you know but at the same time that you know they're not that militant person who's going okay everything has to be perfect just you know give it a go and you'll get there kind of thing you know
1: People and, are like that in English as well. And like, those people are dicks in English. Like the dicks exist in Irish as well, you know.
0: <laughs> of course. I mean, there's it's bound to be that kind of thing you know, out there. Do you find that with all the minority languages that you're involved in, shall we say, you're using Swedish now where you live, you're learning Finnish, Finnish sign language, Irish sign language. I'm sure you've been exposed to the other ones as well. Geilge, Berla, everything that you have there. Are you the same person? Do you express yourself in the same way in sign language as you do Oskarielga, as you do in English? Or do you find that, you know, you're somehow a little bit different in the way you use those languages?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think I'm definitely a less eloquent version of myself in sign language, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like a a person who's like, kind of knows how to swim, but doesn't really know how to swim. And it's just like keeping their head above water. Like, that's where I am.
0: Just soldiering Um, through it.
1: I think I'm definitely... So there's a self-consciousness that I've actually recently gotten over in ISL because like um, I remember my brother asking me before, he was like, why do they make such strange faces? And I was like, oh, that's grammar because like 70% of sign language is facial expressions and 30% is the hand shape. So like when you see these like these like uh, like once every six months I see an, uh, like a, an article about like oh they've made a sign language glove and I'm like clearly no deaf people were involved in that because that's, <laughs> like that is not going to like bridge the gap quote unquote um, so like you have to sort of like make these like weird faces and sort of it can be very self-conscious doing that particularly like me I'm taking my classes over Zoom so I can see my own face making these stupid faces but it's much easier to get your point across when you're having it displayed on your face you know And so I think um, there's definitely that part of it's a much more visual language. It's a much more expressive language. Like, oh, my gosh, like you don't necessarily need to know the sign for what I'm describing in ISL if I can sort of create it with my body, which is something that's really fun. And really, I think it's a much more it's a much more kind of like fluid language in that sense that like the the possibilities are endless. And when a deaf person is telling a story, you know, they become the part of the story that they're telling and it's really cool to see that. Um, So I think there's that much more kind of descriptive element that is in ISL that is in sign languages that isn't in spoken languages. Um, But I think in terms of, 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 it's probably not that I become a different person in these languages, but that these, languages all add to the person that I am now so the person I was before I learned these other languages I mean when you learn another language you're you're just oh my god your life just expands so much your ability to understand different concepts expands so much and I think it's it's definitely made me a different person learning languages and every time I I start to learn a new language it does have that impact on me and I think that that's the beauty of language learning I mean no one People are always like, particularly with minority languages, they're like, oh, it's it's forced on people like find me a person who's fluent in any language and and find me a person who regrets that because like nobody has gotten to the point where they they like, you know, can communicate in a language and can can can, you know, exist in a language and regret it because like you have fundamentally changed the person that you are um I think when you learn a language and become exposed to not just that language but that culture um that accompanies that language I remember listening to a, a really good podcast about language um years ago called the vocal fries and they had a um a guest on and he said the blueprint of a culture is in its language and I just remember that being so powerful and being like absolutely like that's where we understand who a people are where they come from and what their values are and I think that that's something that um is definitely You know, helps me understand the Swedish-speaking Finn community much more, and helps me understand my own identity as an Irish person so much more. um, And you know, understand the deaf community much more. um, And I think it's yeah, it's been it's been the best thing I've ever done was learning languages. We'll see now once once the twenty first of May, which is my due date, once that comes along, how much time I have for language learning.
0: (laughs) See see which languages you choose to pass on. (laughs) At
1: at the risk of sounding
0: deeply ignorant, Gallatin, I need to ask you this question, right? Um, all languages have expressions of culture, poetry, song, et cetera, et cetera. Is it the same in sign language? Do people you mentioned storytelling there and how a deaf person becomes part of their story as as they tell it? Does that exist in the same way that we would understand that in English or Finnish or Swedish?
1: Um yes, and no. So this is really cool. there's there's songs, there's poems, there's drama in in sign language, and it's it's very beautiful. And I would I you know at the best way you could spend an afternoon on YouTube is watching people perform songs I think it was at the again at the Super Bowl there was a that deaf actor Troy Costa I think it's Costa Costa I can't remember what his name is um I know what his sign name is (laughs) uh he he performed the the national anthem but he did it in such a way it wasn't word for word translation he made the performance of the national anthem the American national anthem and oh my god it was beautiful it's it's like stunning I would like recommend anyone watch it But there's this thing in sign languages called role shift where you basically kind of like move your body to become the thing or the person that's speaking. So, you know, like in English when you might be saying, um, oh, I was talking to John. And he was like, and then you you repeat what John said, you know, and he was like, oh, I'm not going down to the pub because I whatever, I had to work in the morning, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then you you take on the role of John briefly and then you switch back to yourself. However, in sign language, you physically move your body in such a way you position yourself. So say you position yourself. This is hard on a, a visual medium, medium, but you position yourself, say, like maybe John is tall or He's broad, or maybe he's really short, and you make yourself into that character when you're talking about it. But that can be also like an entity. It can be like uh, uh, the the you know the government said, and you become the government, or you know the um, the perspective of whatever it is you're talking about. So there's there's that role shift that is really unique to sign language, that is actually quite hard to manifest when when you're learning. That's one of the things that we were kind of like tested on in um some of our classes that like you had to sort of tell a story and incorporate role shift. So like you had to I had to do a sign thing about um oh God, I can't even remember what it was about. Um uh, but we had to, to tell the story of Martin Luther King but then we had to incorporate role shift into this so whether it was you were maybe the laws discussing the fact that you know there was segregation in the south or you were Martin Luther King giving the speech and you have to sort of embody yourself in that role so that's something that is really unique to sign languages I mean maybe it exists in other spoken languages as well you know people often do sort of very exaggerated movements when they're telling a story Mm -hmm. but it's central um and important and vital in in sign languages you need to do that sort of thing when you are um uh you know telling a story or when you're communicating with another person role shift is central
0: it's a fascinating subject that we could talk about it all night but unfortunately i am very aware of the fact that you're eight months pregnant and the only (laughs) resting you're going to do in the next one in the next month with the research that you do, with all the research that you've done already, the things you're working on at the moment, what's the ideal outcome for you? What are you trying to achieve in terms of analysing legal recognition of sign language and other minority languages?
1: Um, I remember talking to a friend who was kind of working in this sort of space before, and she was like, I'm trying to render, my, my end goal is that I don't have a job, and I think that's not my end goal. I'm trying to render myself unemployed, <laughs> because if I'm unemployed, that means that you know there are legal rights for minority language users and that, I mean, sometimes minority language users are proxy for another type of minority, right? So whether it's, you know, we look at uh, migrant languages in Finland or Sweden or Ireland, and that's a proxy for race, right? Or for xenophobia or whatever it is. So I think that that's really important to remember too, that it's not just, this is not just an isolated issue. It's not just about language. It's not just about um, one language community. It's about disability. It's about recognition. It's about you know, uh, the rights of other minorities because no one person is just one identity. So those all of those things get wrapped up into one. And so I think the end goal is, like I said, I don't have a job because people are, not only do they have legal rights, but I think more importantly that they are accepted as valued members of society, period. Like like as a given, they, you don't even need to think about including these people, you know, people with disabilities or people who are deaf or people who speak different languages or use different languages or people from migrant backgrounds or whatever it may be LGBTQ plus people or all of those combined that they're just included and valued in society to the same level that everybody is and then that's the end goal and that's you know, in terms of my own employment, really hard to achieve. So (laughs) I probably will have a job for some time. But I think there there's more than one issue. You can never talk about language rights in in a vacuum because it touches on so many different parts of identity. And and it's it's not it's not appropriate to just discuss it in in terms of the one singular issue because it is so multifaceted and all encompassing. Um, And I think, yeah, so that's the long winded answer to that.
0: It's an, a brilliant answer it is. I just hope that, you know, much and honest, I hope that you would be unemployed some point soon. I really hope that you're not, because I think there's fascinating and very important work that you're doing. And I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about it,
1: Garedine. No worries. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I'm so
0: from
1: me to Good morning. Good to you Going <laughs> <laughs> to <laughs> Yeah, So are um, when when Scanlan we piece the intention because we catch your van he with Frankie. Yeah.
0: Initially, we well, I guess it's ash door den skokie. I guess Tom fear fear do us in us in I guess. I guess us Frankie is is calling to I guess. Yeah. 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 You go A little clip there to round us off, talking about minority languages, the legendary uh, red carpet interview with Paul Mescal uh, Oskarielga, the Irish actor there over beyond at the uh, at the Oscars, and he chatting away there to TG Cahar, and you can hear him saying the beginning, look at him, very sorry for the level of my Irish, and then the girl asks him a question. And he says, uh, oh, I don't understand what you're saying there. And she says, oh, it's Donegal Irish, which um, anybody who went to school in Ireland, we often had teachers from Connacht or from Munster. So we didn't really learn Donegal Irish. And the accent is a little bit different. And some of the things they say are a little bit different. So it can be difficult. And then he gets uh, he gets into it and he answers his question. And off he goes and he uses what he has. So... um very worthwhile exercise altogether. And it went down very well indeed and was a great boost for the Irish language. If you actually scroll back uh, on this podcast, right, you'll find an episode, a bonus episode around the Christmas time, I think, uh, from Gael Le Jane, okay, an Irish girl and, or an Irish woman and TikToker and uh, teacher and Irish teacher and everything else from Guganbara, Barra who uh, teaches Irish online. And she has uh, conversation circles that everybody can join in for free. And she does lessons and she does one to one lessons and group lessons and all that. So if you're interested in that, uh, you can go and find out about the Irish there. And if you're interested in sign language, I mean, the more Guaranty talks about it, and the more you think Jesus how difficult would it be for us to learn a few bits and pieces and to make this a more accessible world for everybody out there anyway we are coming up on the hour mark friends and the dog probably wants to go home might be raining where you are or you might be finished uh, in the gym you might even be sitting listening to the last of this now if you are cutting corners you would be sitting in the car on the way home listening to the last of this so I shall leave you with those thoughts for this week again patreon.com forward slash Man in Stockholm make this today you go in there and throw a fiver into a month into the pot to keep these old podcasts going and if not else, right? Go ahead and share it, right? Don't, don't take the handbrake off yet, right? Hold on to the dog there, tie it to a post and just hit the share button there and send it to somebody you like. Be it WhatsApp, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever and we'll grow the audience for the Global Gale podcast together, right? Take care of yourselves, take care of one another and I'll talk to you all again next week. <music>